Our scripture lesson this morning is drawn from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by, neighbor, by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Several years ago, there was uh, something of a contention in the town in which Carmen taught school. Uh, There was a, a Baptist church where they had put a huge amount of money into a building program And then the minister had felt a call to a bigger and prosperous more church in the middle of the building program. And as you can imagine, that made people rather unhappy with the minister who had experienced this calling. In Carmen's classroom, they were talking about it, and uh, a lot of the the students had no idea what a Baptist was. And so uh, Carmen turned to one of the students, who was the daughter of a Baptist minister, and said, well, maybe you can explain what's a Baptist. And the girl looked very blankly at Carmen and said, I don't know, what is a Baptist? Which is not really what you want your daughter to say in middle school when she's the daughter of the Baptist minister. There's a disconnect there. That's not the first time, though, that we experience that sort of thing while we lived in Richmond, there was a, a Baptist minister who uh, his daughters did not attend church with him. Uh, they sometimes hit or hit another church, but uh, he didn't have them attend church with him because he was very convinced that children should really follow their own way. They should follow their own heart. They should kind of raise themselves. You wouldn't want to impose religion on your children, so uh, this Baptist minister, who every Lord's Day went off to minister to a church, um, he kind of left his daughters to fend for themselves spiritually and to raise themselves to determine what is right and wrong. And he was very proud of doing that, thought that it was a tip of the hat to the doctrine of individual freedom. You know, my, my children will become whatever they become because they raised themselves. It's not just a Baptist problem, though. We actually had a very similar story take place in the Christian Missionary Alliance Church. 
all across uh, Christendom in the West, and particularly in America, there is a growing philosophy that, honestly, the ancients of any stripe, whether you're talking about spiritual or pagan, uh, just simply would not have thought of, would not have acknowledged as having any wisdom at all. Uh, And it can be summed up in leave children to their own devices and let them raise themselves. There are those who verbalize that, who say it's child abuse to inflict upon children being reared effectively. Children from the womb are expected to be left to their devices to seek out what's true and won't it be wonderful when searching out the world, they're true to themselves, and they become whatever they will be. Paul writes to men and women who did not grow up under God's word. They grew up pagan. They were Greeks and Romans. They have become Christians. They are now in the churches of Galatia, but even they... Paul could say to them, now you understand that children, so much as they are children, even though they are heirs, even though they are sons, even though they're going to inherit everything, a child is effectively like a slave. And he says this in a very positive way, and these men and women who were raised in not Christian, not covenantal homes at all, Uh, would say, yeah, I understand that. That's that's the way it works. Because across humanity, uh, in all times and places, it has been simply understood children come forth from the womb needing to be raised, needing to be reared. And when Paul talks about children are like slaves, he's not talking negatively He is simply talking about the fact that children don't own their own obedience. Children are born, their obedience belonging to their parents, just as slaves' obedience is to their masters. That is the way things should work. That is the way they do work. If you want to actually raise children to have any sense at all and to be able to fit into the world at all, You raise them, you discipline them, you direct their actions. And if that is true for pagans who only have common revelation, uh, it should be much more true for believers of any stripe who have biblical revelation. We have passages like Proverbs 22, verse 6, "...train up a child in the way he should go." And when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's a proverb. It's not exactly a promise, but it's the way things overwhelmingly work. Train up a child. The word training suggests long and laborious, repetitive raising. Train up a child in the way he should go, not the way they, at six years old, think they should go, Train them up in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. Again, training suggests a authority, 
and a ruled, a subject, train a child, that's a biblical command. In Deuteronomy, we are taught what the relationship between a child and a parent ought to be in chapter 6. We hear the Shema, the, uh, effectively the creed of, of uh, monotheism in verse 4, and then it goes into what a home should look like. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So, when Moses is restating the revealed law, uh, he turns to what the life of a believing family ought to be like, and children are to be discipled. They are to be raised in a disciplined way. They are to be taught. They are to be directed. Uh, there will be a day when they're not children, but when they are children, when they're in your house, wherever you happen to go with them, you teach them and train them. And this doesn't change when you get to the New Testament. You have passages like Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, where we read this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. You'll notice, by the way, how Paul assumes that the activity of the law of God is normative. He quotes the Ten Commandments and says this is the right way to do things. And he says, train up your children. Now, don't... Uh, don't do it in an overbearing way that causes children to turn to wrath. That can be done. Uh, but then in Scripture, there is revelation to slave owners, not to be cruel to slaves, but to treat them with kindness, to treat them with a mind that you have a slave owner in heaven who is your master. It's kind of the same sort of thing. Fathers, don't drive your children to wrath, which you can do, but train them, lifelong process till they become adults, you own their obedience. In the Babylonian Talmud, the rabbis ultimately agreed that if you were going to be a good father, you would instill upon your children four things. You would lay the foundation for four things in your teaching. You would teach them the law, and of course we saw that from Deuteronomy. You would teach them a trade, because they would need to take care of themselves and uh, support their house. You should arrange for them to have a spouse, a good spouse. 
and you should make sure they know how to swim. The fourth one is a little surprising, but if you read Scripture, uh, the ocean is a symbol of destruction and power, uh, and it's something that if you end up in the middle of it, you want to be able to navigate. So if you are a good Jewish father and you're training up your children, you set them up in business, you make sure they know the law of God, you arrange for a, a godly spouse, and you take them to swimming lessons. There is no thought in the ancient world, no thought in Scripture, that uh, children are to be left on their own devices. It's, it's a foolish, foolish way of thinking. And the reason for that is because every generation of man has looked at those little bitty infants that have come forth from the womb, and after they have said, oh, isn't that cute, they have acknowledged this little creature doesn't really know much. It doesn't know much at all. And it would be child abuse, it would be foolishness, it would be the height of rebellion to the Creator to allow this child to enter into the world knowing nothing and leaving it in that estate, assume it will pick something up, which is the current philosophy. We have embraced a philosophy that almost no other age has ever thought to embrace because it is insanity on its face. As Paul puts it here, and it cannot be overstated, children are to be like slaves, and that is a good thing. Now I say that the heir, a very positive word, he's going to inherit all, all the, the stuff you have, now, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. Now, uh, he's not just under parents, though, in verse 2, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. So, while it's true that not a lot of slaves necessarily had a bunch of teachers, the relationship between child and parent is an authoritative one. It's one where the child is learning. And because the parent loves the child, the parent brings in teachers and teaches the child so that the child will learn something so that when he is no longer a child, he will be able to function in the world. Uh, this won't last forever. And it is somewhat subjective. In the second half of chapter 2, Paul notes that now you stay a child until the time set by your father. And throughout human history, uh, times varied. In the ancient world, it tended to be 12 to 14. In modern times, it's been assigned at 18, but uh, culturally, it's almost up to 42. Um, it tends to be kind of culturally subjective, but there will become a time where society will look at this child and say, this is not a child anymore, this is an adult, and uh, they need to have been trained. They need to have been prepared for when they step out into the world on their own, they have what it takes to do that. Uh, when the, once the child grows up, then you can look at that child and say, this is a true son. Uh, 
If you look at how Paul is using the term sonship here, he's not using it simply as, this is my biological offspring. He's using it in a much more positive way. It's the parent who, having labored for 18 years or so, is able to think back over all those difficult times, all those laborious times, all those times where you wanted to pull out your hair and your beard, but they actually have developed, they have become someone of quality, and you can look at them and say, that is a true child of mine. I will own him. I won't hide from the fact that they're my child. I will proudly say, this is my son. Not every parent gets there. In fact, I'm sure if you think to yourself, you can think of some people who their children, honestly, are not somebody that they want to say, well, you know, that's my child. Uh, Nine times out of ten, it tends to be, they didn't really raise them, and they turned into little hellions, and so they really can't look at them and say, oh, that's my child. I'm really glad that's my child. Well, you know, you kind of did this by not doing anything. But Paul pictures a child being raised to adulthood The child was like a slave, that was positive, the child was trained, and now adulthood has come, and the parent is proud of the child. This is the principle that Paul is speaking of, but it's not his topic. Paul introduces this to these pagans as something that they will all agree upon, and they all do, Uh, Today, that couldn't be assumed, as I've said, but at this time when the writing is written, it can be assumed, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to work. Well, he's laying down this principle because he is building on this principle what he has been talking about before. The New King James introduces chapter 4 kind of blandly. Now I say that. But in many other modern language translations, uh, they kind of get to the root of what Paul is saying right as the chapter begins. You can see it in the Amplified. Uh, Now, what I mean when I talk about children and their guardians is this. There's a little application there in the brackets, but now what I mean is actually in the original, Paul is laying down this principle because he wants to fortify what he's already told us. And he's told us a number of things. He has been talking about uh, God's moral law and its ministry to us before faith has personally been given to us and what that ministry is. And that ministry has been seen both in positive and negative aspects, negative in the sense that it condemns everyone it's over, But also, Paul has talked about some very positive things, and he's described it in terms that fit with what he says elsewhere in Romans, that the law is holy, righteous, and good. Before I had faith in God through Christ, I was nevertheless in relation to God through the first covenant. I was under the law, and the law was from God, and it was holy, righteous, and good. It was ministering to me, and it was doing very positive things for me. The law here is uh, parental. It is acting like the teacher, the guardian that the father 
gets for the child to train the child when the child knows next to nothing. We are born into this world not knowing that the stove is hot. We're born into this world not knowing that the moving car is dangerous. We're born into this world not realizing that the pretty little dog that's growling and has its hair up will bite us if we touch it. We need a parent and a guardian, a teacher, to instill in us these very basic principles that throughout life we need to know. Well, spiritual reality isn't all that different. There is not a lot that a child born into the world knows about God. Now, I don't say there is nothing that a child can know, but there is almost nothing. And there is a reason why the second table of the law begins with honor your father and your mother. It's really because at the beginning of life, mom and dad are kind of an example for what God is. Uh, Children will experience an authority over them, almost seemingly all-powerful and providing for them and mom and dad. And this literally is kind of a type and shadow of God, and they will come to have an idea about God through their parents. Well, spiritually, we are infants when we're born just as much as we are temporally. We know next to nothing about God. We know next to nothing about basic spiritual principles. Do small children know that thou shalt not steal? Watch them sometime, and you'll realize the answer is no. Um, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor? Children don't have to be taught to lie. I mean, they're good at it. Children are born needing basic principles about spiritual things. And they need guidance in that, and they need training in that. The law has been doing that. The principle of relating to God by faith has existed in human history from Genesis chapter 3. God gives a promise of the gospel. I'm going to send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. It's a promise to man. Man is expected to believe it. It's the essence of the second covenant. Abraham relates to God in the second covenant He believes God, and it's credited to him for righteousness. But no child is born in that state. There are a couple Lutherans who, because of a couple of really very esoteric church fathers, will teach you that infants are born with faith in God, and that's why you baptize them, because they have faith. It's a really weird doctrine, and almost all the rest of the church says, "Eh, that's really weird. Children are born not really in faith, and they need basic training. They need to be taught what is right, what is wrong. They need to be shown their deficiencies, that they are not spiritually where they ought to be. They need to be trained up in the spiritual world just as much as the physical world, and that is what the law is doing. It is God's teacher. It is God's tutor. It is the the slave owner's trainer for his slave, who is rightly a slave, even though he is a son. He is in need 
of overbearing rule and protection. We have just come back from Ohio. We went up there to be grandpa and grandma. Uh, our grandson is in the middle of his second year, and he has become the bird child from Alcatraz. He has figured out how to get out of his, his bed. And uh, nap time is an experience, because he's not going to nap. And we're going to make him nap. So uh, somebody has to go back there and hold him down and sing 45 verses of Jesus loves me to him until he finally goes to sleep. He has to be manhandled for this basic thing to happen, and that's the right thing to happen. He is a child, he is in a slave-like relation, and that's good for him. Well, you're developing in God's world... You know very little about right and wrong, very little about God's existence, very little about the consequences of sin or its nature. God sends forth the law, and you are under it. You are under it if you are a Jew, but you are also under it if you are a Gentile. There is no human being born into the world that is not under God's law from the very moment go, because God's law is of the first covenant, and all men were created in the first covenant. So no matter where you are, no matter what religion you profess, before God you are under the law in that covenant. Now, you may be thinking he's a broken record and he keeps using the word covenant a lot, but as we go further into this chapter, we're going to hear Paul use that very same kind of language. If you drop down to verse 21, Paul is going to summarize all of this with an allegory, but beginning of verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he who of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. This is the important line. For these are the two covenants. Paul uses the term covenant. It sums up everything he's been talking about. How many covenants are there? There are two These are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband." So Paul is going to use the language of the covenants. There are two of them. And all people everywhere are in the first covenant, not really receiving exactly the same amount of light, but they are all under the law of God to some degree. When Paul talks about those who are visibly in God's covenant from Sinai, in Romans chapter 9 he says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So if you are visibly in God's covenant at the time of Paul, uh, you've been raised with a lot of things testifying to you. And it's not just the law. It's the, the whole essence of divine religion. But uh, if you don't have faith, it's law. It is testifying to you what is right, what is wrong, what, what should be, what is. Uh, and it's, it's a blessedly powerful light if you see it. But if you are a Gentile and you were born in Mongolia at the time of Paul, you are still being ministered to by the law because Paul says this concerning Gentiles in chapter 2 of Romans, verse 11 to 16. There is no partiality with God, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as sinned in the law will be judged by the law, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. So every human being born, the law is ministering to. Why is it that people who are in South America at the time of Christ's birth would probably have agreed with people who were in Mongolia and people who were in Israel that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, well, it's because the law of God is an internal thing as well as an external. It's written on the heart. It testifies to man, this is right, this is wrong. It trains him up in the way he should go. The law ministers to everyone in this parental way. And it's a holy, righteous, and blessed thing. But it only goes so far. What is the testimony of the history of the Jewish people, those who are in God's covenant very visibly, in the majority of the scriptures? What happens there? Well, for most of their history, the majority of them turned to idolatry. They turned to other gods. They worship uh, things their hands make. They worship other deities of other nations. And yet they have this testimony to them, what is right and what is wrong, testifying to who God is, but they don't embrace that. They don't listen to their guardian, they don't receive faith, and they go astray. What happened to the Gentiles that Paul is writing to here? Who were they before the gospel came to them? Well, Paul is very clear, he says now, When the law was ministering to you basic principles, and it was, nevertheless, you were in bondage 
to idols. You were in bondage to things that weren't gods. And ironically, you took the basic principles of the world, things that are right, things that are holy, things that are virtuous, as well as natural laws, and you embodied them as gods. Zeus is the god of thunder, right? He's the god of the storm. Apollo is the god of music and medicine and dance. You were having the law testify to you what is good things, what is righteous things, but it only went so far and you turned to idolatry centered around these basic principles. And the Jews turned to idolatry centered around basic principles. Or they went where they are now when Paul is writing, they turned to the law and idolatrized it. The law became, this is how I'll be made right with God, where the law was never designed to do that. If we drop back into chapter 3, we read this concerning what the law was really supposed to do. Um, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The law's major focus is to bring us to Jesus Christ. Whether we are a Jew or a Gentile, the ministry of our guardian, the ministry of our tutor, is to point us beyond himself and to direct us to what spiritual maturity is really supposed to be. And men like Abraham entered into that maturity. He believed in God who was credited to him as righteousness. David entered into that maturity. How blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Godly saints throughout all history have entered into that maturity. But faith is a gift of God, and the law directs you to that gift, and the law is a means of grace that God may use to give you that gift, but the law is no substitute for that gift. If you don't have faith in Christ, 100% faith in Christ, in His holy work, in what He did when He was born under a woman, under law, His righteousness in the flesh, His righteous sacrifice, if you don't have faith in that, law will never substitute for that. And law was never meant to. At no time, at any point in human history, law was designed to point you to the promise of Jesus Christ. If you are still under a tutor, if you are still in the first covenant, Paul is saying, spiritually, you are still a child. It has well been said, age is mandatory, maturity is optional. And we all know people who embody that. The 65-year-old crybaby, we we know them. Or in the teaching profession, there is a proverb that says there are some teachers who teach 30 years, and there are some teachers who teach one year 30 times. Same idea. No growth, no development, no maturity. They're a teacher, but they're not. Because they are still immature. Well, Paul has put spiritual life in these terms, 
And he has defined becoming an adult, becoming what God really wants you to be and has always wanted from all mankind in all places, as having faith in the work of Jesus Christ, not faith in the law and you're keeping it. You become God's treasured son at that point. You have walked out of childhood, you have walked out of immaturity, you have walked out of spiritual brokenness where you need to be a slave, and you have walked into the glorious inheritorship of an adult son. And God looks at you and says, this is what I wanted. I wanted children who have faith in Jesus Christ, in what he did, in who he was. This is my child. This is the one that I am proud to call a son. And the law has trained you to get there. You were not born as an infant ready to have faith in Jesus Christ. But time has gone on, and the law has ministered to you, and you have not trusted in the law, you have not idolatrized the law, you have listened to what the law says, and the law says, I'm a sinner, I fail miserably, There are spiritual principles that I acknowledge are holy, righteous, and good, and I drop below them. But there is a Christ promised to me. The law testifies to him and points to him. I have laid hold of him because God has given me faith. Like Paul says to the Ephesians, uh, you know, you've been saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no man should boast. That's where you've come to. You have received the gift of God. You have become a son of God. You are what God has always wanted you to be. Congratulations, adulthood is the goal. It is what God wants, and you're there. And the reason why Paul is going into this at length is because any religion of works righteousness, any religion of of merit is effectively an invitation to you to go back and be a spiritual infant. You were selfish as a child. You were unthinking as a child. You were a walking temper tantrum. And the law had to beat you down. The law had to keep you in control. But now you're an adult. Why don't you touch the hot part of the stove today? Is it because mommy will come and slap your fingers? Or is it because now that you're 27, you don't want to set your hand on fire? In both cases, you don't want to touch the stove. But the principles have been internalized. The the teaching of the parent has succeeded. And now you're an adult. You're what you're supposed to be. When you have faith in Christ, when you lay hold of Christ, you are spiritually adult. You're what God wants you to be. And the proponent of works righteousness whether he is an Arminian, whether he is a Romanist, whether he is a Muslim, whether he is a Jew, whether he is a Judaizer, really, no matter what religion he professes, he brings you a religion of merit, and he invites you to go back to the cradle. He invites you to be in diapers. He invites you to walk away from adulthood, to walk away from God's praise and and joy in you and be an eternal child. 
viewed in that light, you can see this as a remarkably paltry alternative. Why would I want to return to the cradle? Why would I want to give up the glorious sonship I have given to me by Jesus Christ, given to me by his righteousness, given to me by the gift of faith, why would I want to go back to basic principles? That's the term Paul uses for the law. It's the basic principles that treat me as a slave when I need to be treated that way. Why would I want to go back to that? It is madness. It is stupidity. It is nothing that adults would do. May God give us grace to see what the blessedness of sonship is in faith in Jesus Christ.